From Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, researcher Dr. Bobby Henry's work on Indigenous street gangs and lifestyle has earned international recognition. Today, he is in the studio with me to talk about why people choose these lifestyles, how our current systems of health and justice propagate these lifestyle choices, and what he's doing to foster meaningful change in our community. What's up, everybody? My name is Dan. This is Hard Knocks Talks, coming at you from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis people. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. Good to have you, man. It's uh, It's been a while. We, uh, we've been going back and forth on Messenger for, I'd say, Almost a year now. Yeah, about about a year, I think, since yeah. we've been uh, starting off the conversation on how to get on here and everything. So uh-huh. I'm just glad it's finally able to happen. The stars align. They finally align. I have <laughs> yeah. one a Friday morning off here, so this yeah. is great. Is there anything that you'd like to say before we jump in? No, I think it's a, a pleasure to be here. Um, looking forward to the discussion that we're going to have, and hopefully uh, people can get something from it. I think... Um, when we look at this and we see what's happening in the media and a lot of the, of the discussions that people are having, mm-hmm. I think a lot of these issues are really prevalent. And I think we just need to start asking a lot of really hard questions on how to actually deal with a lot of the, the issues mm-hmm. um, related to um, substances. Uh, how are street gangs being involved in, and this creation of fear that we're creating within our community? And I think that this is uh, some a good point to start talking about all of this and what does this all mean all right well let's jump in this is hard knocks talks okay today's episode is title sponsored by the near network of saskatchewan the near network of saskatchewan supports first nations and metis health research through a number of activities all developed to address barriers that can prevent indigenous stakeholders from participating in research to learn more about their work find their link in the description below so before we really jump into to what we're here to talk about today i'm interested to know why why do you do what you do sure um so it's a question i've been asked uh in the past and everything else and i got into this uh when i was an educational assistant back in prince albert at queen mary community school back in the early part uh i'm going to age myself but whatever it's all good uh at the turn of the century so around 1999-2000, I was an educational assistant at Queen Mary Community School. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue of uh, street gangs were just starting to come up into the media in Prince Albert. It was starting to come in and say, no, gangs are becoming an issue. The school brought in uh, police officers to talk about the issue because teachers were getting fearful and mm-hmm. the EAs. And, and we, were, we were just wanted to know more information and everything else because of where Queen Mary was located within the, in the community. And the police officers came in and they, they did their talk and there's nothing against them for what they were saying at the time because there's just no information. Mm-hmm. And we're just kind of gathering whatever the media was saying, whatever was coming from the U.S. and these large centers. And we're just kind of trying to apply it here mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan. And for those of you who are maybe not familiar with Prince Albert, it's a it's a quadrant city. So there's a there's there's definitive lines that you can make a quadrant out of it. And it's all uh, geographically um, laid out. And if you're from Prince Albert, like I am, you, you know, when you talk about certain areas, like what's going on. So mm-hmm. when the police were there, I, they started to say, well, it's these kids wearing backwards, uh, baby blue New York Yankees hats. And what we have to understand is at the time, uh, New York Yankees were going through a branding. So they were trying to brand and, and, and this is where the hats were changing colors and everything else. And so they're mm-hmm. trying to get into pop culture mm-hmm. a little bit more instead of just sports culture. They wanted to, to brand themselves out. So they said, it's these kids wearing these hats. And I asked the question and I said, well, what about the kids who are wearing these hats in the same way 
up on top of in on the east hill mm-hmm. and the and on in Prince Albert, the East Hill at the time is uh, primarily upper middle class, uh, primarily white. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were wearing the hats too? And they were wearing the hats too. Yeah. Oh. So so you got to remember like pop culture, the New York Yankees, it isn't just specifically for certain things. Yeah. So they're wearing the hats and the police were saying, no, no, not those kids. What about the kids on the West Hill? Not those kids. What about the kids on the East Flat? Not those kids. But when you kind of get to Midtown, like that's what we're kind of seeing. And mm-hmm. I said, so basically it's only these kids on the West flat that you're looking at. And what they said was yes, because they're the ones who commit crime. Mm-hmm. And that hit me because uh, was there, was there truth to that? Well, what the truth is, is that, that, that area is high, uh, low socioeconomic, high indigenous population, um, mm-hmm. that was, that lived there. So to me at the time, I didn't really understand. I, I understood that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't quite understand what was going on with it because, um, my f- I have family that lived down in that area. I had family that were wearing like the baby blue hats because that's what it was. But I knew they weren't gang members. Mm-hmm. And so I started to ask the question, well, why is it that we um, can associate these sort of negative labels onto indigenous and poor bodies so rapidly and so quickly and associate their behaviors to criminal behaviors when we see the same behaviors going out in other areas, but we're, we're looking at them differently mm. or we're, we're not looking at them as criminal, but we're, it's like, oh, they're just boys being boys or they're just learning how to grow up or they're just making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Whereas these other kids are, are doing something different. So that's what got me into this thinking about what is a, like, how are we constructing gang? How are, we utilizing certain bodies, certain things on this. Um, and so that kind of led me into, uh, I went through SunTap in Prince Albert, uh, where the uh, courses and the, and the classes, when we had open assignments, I'd look at what is the policy that schools have on, on street gangs? Mm-hmm. Um, because they start to build these policies, no bandanas and so forth. And, mm. um, and then when I was finished that, I ended up uh, starting a master's program, uh, in the College of Education, uh, where I was looking at how do youth define street gangs mm-hmm. from themselves, from their own perspective, because we didn't have a definition mm-hmm. of what was going on. And we were applying definitions. And I was trying to ask, okay, well, well how do the youth see themselves? How do they see these groups? Um, I, I couldn't do it at the time because there was some shifting that was happening with... And uh, nobody was asking the youth. No, nobody was asking uh, these questions. Like there were some little reports that were being done at the same time that I was asking these questions. So I was like, oh, great, that this is starting to happen. Mm-hmm. But at the same time that I wanted to start doing work with the uh, with these youth, with the youth who are inner city core youth, mm-hmm. um, there were shifts at, at a federal level on how to do research and the tri-council policies came in. And uh, great advice that was given to me um, by uh, Dr. Vernon St. Dennis was, you're just not ready to do this research yet. And so, and, not, and what she was saying was not to do the research on street gangs and understanding Indigenous street gangs, but not to do the work with the youth. You just don't right. have the that's those skills and the amount of time it's going to need to do everything. Like directly engage. It directly engage youth. and everything else. Okay. It's going to be take too long for a master's. Yeah. And so can you figure something else out? So what I did was I used my master's to ask uh, service providers, police, uh, nonprofits, uh, provincial agencies, uh, and corrections, how do they go about defining or identifying street gangs, street gang behavior, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And what it was, was it was a really, it was, re- and it was really good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helped me understand that everybody sort of passes this idea of what a gang is to the next agency or the next level around. So, um, 
community agencies would say at the time, well, we don't define street gangs. We just say no colors. Well, I'm, I'm like, well, what if those are the only colors that an individual has? Well, the, no bandanas. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's different and mm-hmm. colors are being used. Then the police will say, well, we don't define gang members. The courts define gang members. And the courts say, well, we don't define gang members. The the, the, the lawyer, like, mm. and, and it keeps going through it. It's Another like, well, perfect circle. And it goes all the way around. Yeah, so it yeah, keeps yeah. saying, like, we're not defining. And and why it's why it's important is that if we're going to actually start talking about this, we need to understand, is it actually gang behavior or street gang or street behavior? And there's a difference between street culture, gang culture. They're very similar mm-hmm. and there's a lot of connections, but there's there's differences that are happening at the same time. Mm. From there, um, I took I had a year off uh, again. I was told, go learn how to work in the community. Okay. Um, and do community engaged research. And so I worked for a nonprofit for a year. And then I started my uh, PhD um, working with uh, Straight Up. Um, and okay. so in 2006, I met Father Andre mm-hmm. um, and Stan Tunifuku. And we, and at that time, I was just doing my master's. And I said, I'd love to be able to do research and get to know you guys a little bit more. And he, Father Andre said, I don't like researchers. All you do is steal these people's stories and everything yeah. else. And I said, well, I don't want to be that person. So we started a relationship. Mm-hmm. So in 2006, we started this relationship. I was working on my master's. 2010, uh, I get into the PhD program with uh, Dr. Caroline Tate. Mm-hmm. And um, I showed the project that I wanted to do. And what I did was in my master's, I saw this book called um, It's All Good mm-hmm. by Boogie. And what he did was he went into the Bronx in New York and took a camera and started taking pictures of what he was seeing, but then he was taking pictures, uh, and people started to talk to him, and he started to collect their stories, and then one person, and then he would he would have these stories come out, and then that's what I wanted to do with the with my PhD was begin to understand what is the role that masculinity plays in constructing this image of the gang, mm-hmm. and how do how do individuals uh, come into it, and how do they work themselves out of it mm-hmm. through photo voice, so an arts based uh, research methods where you give so instead of myself taking the pictures, I gave cameras to straight up members who wanted to participate. Hang on a sec. What did you call it? Arts based. It's arts based research. Arts based. Yeah. So isn't that kind of like what I'm doing? So photo voice, kind of like what you're doing with podcasts and everything else like that. So <laughs> yes, relevance. So tell me now, uh, what is your current position at USASC? Sure, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Indigenous Studies, mm-hmm. and then I'm the principal investigator for the Networks Environments of Indigenous Health Research. Uh, which is a Natawin and Mamawi Kekiak research networks. Mm-hmm. And so the NIRs are, um, there's nine across the country and they're su- to support uh, community engaged or community based uh, research mm-hmm. um, and to try and improve health and well being. And each one is different on how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, with ours, we decide to go in a distinctions based approach and trying to make sure that First Nations and Metis, um, because there's issues with the term Indigenous. Mm. where everybody gets sees indigenous and it's all yeah. put together. You know, actually, I was sorry to interrupt, but I was at a, I was at a, a meeting uh, and, and our, uh, our, our friend Jason Mercury was up on the, on the podium and he was giving everyone crap for doing just that. Yeah. You know, like you guys are taking records and stuff, but you're just lumping us all into an indigenous category when in fact we are the Métis and the indigenous and this and that. We're all very different people. Yeah. You know, so he made a really big point of shining a giant light on that. And I think it's it's an important light that I think more and more people are starting to understand, mm-hmm. and especially when it comes to programming and policy and um, and cultural program development. Mm-hmm. Right. They'll say, here's an indigenous program, but then all of a sudden it's all Anishinaabe. And if you're applying it to somebody who's Haida, mm-hmm. how does that work? Or somebody who's Dene, how does that work? Or Inuit or Métis? So how does and so this is 
and then when that gets controlled by the state, that's a, a whole other issue that we can talk about in another day mm-hmm. within all of that. And then I also hold a Canada Research Chair, uh, Tier 2 in Indigenous Justice and Wellbeing. Mm. Um, and so that's what I'm doing uh, right now at the university. Mm. So it might seem obvious to 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 you and, and to me, but I think it's important that we ask this question and we dire- and we answer it directly. Uh, why do people get into these lifestyles? Like, what is the root cause here of of why we have gang culture? Why we have such a strong drug culture? Well, so I think it's. I don't want to generalize too much, but from what I've come to see over the course of working with individuals, and and again, like my research. What I do is I I work with people. Um, And what I mean by that is I I do life history research. So I sit down with individuals and ask them, let's just start from the beginning. What do you remember at your earliest stage of your life? Mm. And let's just work through that. And so it's a long, long uh, process. So it's not just like a one interview that we sit down and we say, hey, uh, answer these questions for me. Were you um, when was the first time that you you smoked a cigarette? When was the first time you had a beer? When was it, what, all of this? Rather, I'm trying to look at who were your role models while you were growing up? What was what did you see in your home? What did you how was this going on? And so when we start looking at that and peeling back the layers and mm-hmm. start uh, analyzing these narratives, we begin to see that a lot of times the street lifestyle and the street gang culture is just a place to survive for a lot of individuals mm. that they, there's limited resources in, in a lot of communities um, that they're looking at. And that's why I use with my research and trying to understand what is, how does survivance fit in with this? So survival resistance and resurgence, mm-hmm. because a lot of people get caught up on you're in the gang, not how you got into the gang or how you're getting out. And they just see people in a certain static just point, gang member, gang member, static point. And mm-hmm. the, this narrative that once a gang member, always a gang member mm-hmm. that was pushed really hard in the eighties and nineties by mm-hmm. uh, like once you're in, it's impossible to get out. Yeah. And, and it was a really uh criminal justice sort of approach. So a pro like a policing approach that yes a gang member is always a gang member and all of that and it ignores the idea that when we look at street gang members um early on here is that a lot of the individuals would come in short periods of time and then leave Mm -hmm. they would leave the gang but they were still part of the street culture Mm -hmm. and so it's almost it's ignoring the idea that the street gang is the if we look at a hierarchy of um what's happening on the street, the street gang members at the top. And then you have all these other identities that are throughout it, but it's all connected within the underground street economy. Mm -hmm. And so why are people getting involved in this? Well, there's a lack of job opportunities. Um, When we look at why individuals are joining gangs, a lot of people say, what's a sense of belonging? And I'm saying, well, for indigenous street gangs, not quite. Um, because people are saying, well, it's developing family. I'm like, not quite again. Mm. When we take uh, more of an indigenous lens into this, we have to understand that family is uh, much more broad than what a Eurocentric lens of the nuclear family of the father, mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we look at this, we we need to understand that indigenous street gangs, uh, because there's so such little information out there actually from indigenous gang members themselves, that mm-hmm. that's what we need to do. We need to start understanding what's happening. Mm-hmm. And and why was that information not considered relevant? Well, I think it's just, it's hard to get involved in, like, it's hard to build trust with foster relationships, you know, foster relationships right? Like yeah, yeah. 2006, and it wasn't until about 2011, 2012, where I did my first interview with Straight Up. Mm. And it, it, it was, it took me six years to build a relationship with Father Andre and Stan yeah. that they trusted me. Yeah. This idea of belonging and family that people are talking about and they utilize this all the time. We need to get foster better belonging. 
the from the narratives that I've done, and I've worked with over fifty, almost sixty individuals across the prairies mm-hmm. um, over the last uh, about ten years or so. Um, it's money, power, and respect. Those are the three things that we see on why individuals are joining in. The, this idea of belonging comes a little bit later on, but the main three things are money, power, and respect. Mm-hmm. Individuals um, in a capitalist society need money in order to not just to survive, but to purchase what you need. Once that you start getting that, then you get the power and the respect. And that becomes even more addictive so than anything else. So they're just not unlike everyone else. They're just looking for a, a meaningful life. They're looking for a meaningful life. And there's an underground economy. Yeah. Like we got to remember, like if, if, if there was no underground, and I, we can call this as a non-taxed economy, mm-hmm. if, the, if that economy was taxed, nobody would care what was going on there at all. But because mm-hmm. it's untaxed, this, this becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of ele- illegality. So... I think we need to, um, I think we need to start looking at that and understanding, okay, if, what, it, what are the resources that communities are looking for, um, in order to, that, that they're not getting from other areas because that's, that's capitalism at heart. Mm-hmm. And so this is where it gets, it kind of gets confusing or it's not, it's not confusing. It's just, if we say that, um, you need this to be somebody or that we're pushing, like you have your beautiful studio here. Mm. Well, how do you get your studio? Mm-hmm. Right. It, you need to be pushing in this sort of engage in capitalism. Yeah. But if you, so you didn't have your sponsors, you didn't have anything like that. How do you go and get all these resources? Mm. So mm-hmm. if you don't have opportunities to uh, a proper everything else, like how, how are you going? That's to how it? rap music started. Did you heard that? The, and I forget which, and this is just coming off the top of my head, but I know I, I heard it in a documentary is that um, rap music started right after a riot took place where, where high-end music stores were, were, were looted and uh, suddenly made all this sound equipment available to those less fortunate people. And uh, as a result, this beautiful culture emerged. So I'm not sure exactly that, but I do know that uh, hip hop, yeah. came and hip hop was born out of strife within yeah. uh, New York City's through gang culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I should say that that's a part of it. I yeah. shouldn't say that's the whole thing, but yeah. it became more mainstream when they were able to produce the music in a, yeah. a more professional way. Yeah. And I think what you look at, what's interesting is you look at, uh, there's a documentary called Rebel Kings. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, for individuals who are interested or listening to your, uh, listening to this, I recommend going to, going to watch it on, uh, you can get it on YouTube. Um, and it's, I believe it's free on YouTube mm-hmm. and, um, but it talks about the gang, like the gang culture in New York and how it all evolved and it came to one tipping point. And then all of a sudden it shifted into this idea of what is hip hop. And you could see the shift of the gang culture mm-hmm. of being violent to one another, to one of, we're still identifying as our gangs, but we're not violent towards one another. And they're utilizing hip hop and they DJing just, yeah. music to actually, to do a lot of things. And it shifted, it, it reshifted the way in which culture was being promoted within the streets uh, and then that and then a new way up, to express themselves new way express and then we get into um later on um once hip-hop and everything and um the djing was going it then it shifted into a again this sort of deep hardcore rap that was going on but again mm-hmm. it got criminal the the message got criminalized by society yeah but it was really just well, easy he didn't help either well but <laughs> the whole point is is that they yeah. were talking about how their life like just because 
the gangs weren't fighting much themselves. They were still getting police brutality and everything else. Yeah. And that's what they're talking about. They're talking about their strife. And yeah. much music, uh, MTV, gave, gave that a larger platform. Mm-hmm. And then we began to see this idea of, and this is where I guess move up, is that gang culture and pop culture are interrelated. Mm-hmm. And so this is today now you see people um, will be pop culture such as Crooks and Castle, mm-hmm. which wasn't made for gang members, has now been brought in by gang members as a way in which for to wear diamond clothing, et cetera. So we always see these brands that are trying to create this urban streetwear mm-hmm. for upper middle class kids in urban America. Mm-hmm. And yet now we're, we see it happening within um, uh, inner city neighborhoods and everything else. And they adopt it and, and they go with it. So it's so it's it's a resistance culture and mm-hmm. this i guess this is where i'm i'm getting we're kind of going all over the place but okay. the idea with uh with the gangs and that's why the the confusing part what what is really gang culture yeah um and what's the difference between gang culture and street culture and this is where i'm at and in my research is trying to just understand okay how do people get involved mm-hmm. what does this culture mean mm-hmm. and then how do people exit is and how to like what are the supports necessary mm-hmm. and that's why i use survivance as a way to show that it's a life history we've got uh we've got dr sharon akus in the chat bringing up a very uh good talking point good morning sharon my friend sharon says another thing that is important in saskatoon regina and prince albert is to somehow let these people know using red blue black white and yellow which are also used in traditional ceremonies so in a way, this could be used, and inadvertently or not, to uh, attack culture. Do you know what I mean? Well, I'm not sure if it's attacking culture. Like when you you start not to... not advertently, but no, but but again, like I think there's ceremonial. Like again, I think what uh, Dr. Sharon Akus is is highlighting is that there's uh, within First Nations cultures and ceremonies there's cloths and the cloths mean specific colors and everything else and Mm -hmm. i I agree and i think that that's really important that Mm -hmm. this is a um to go back but within the street culture because the the street culture that we have here is adapted from an american street culture Mm -hmm. so and there it's the colors and the flags and that's how you identify your um who your crew is Mm -hmm. right so just like if i wear a canadian flag on my backpack and i go across the borders people know i'm canadian because i have the canadian flag on and apparently you get treated better supposedly yeah (laughs) that's why if do you put an american flag on or do you put a canadian flag right so when you go internationally so this like right there so how do you know what neighborhoods you're in and so this is like again this is why i find street culture and gang culture so fascinating is trying to understand and mm-hmm. seeing it as a microcosm of our larger world. Mm-hmm. So you look at the way in which uh, tagging is done to mark territory. Well, how do we mark our territories? We put our flags up in certain areas and say, we've claimed, like, this is our territory. This is our land. And and, mm-hmm. and you mark off your barriers and you protect those barriers. Mm-hmm. And you display that brand when you go abroad. So and, uh, this is where I'm from. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what it is. So this is where, uh, like, these questions I keep, I try and, I try and grapple with. And then when it comes to... Um, like the idea of addictions, it, it's um, people always run and say, well, it's substance and, and everything else. And I'm like, okay, let's pull this back again. Where were the three reasons why individuals became involved in street gangs in the first place? Money, power, and respect. Mm-hmm. All three of those are very highly addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. If you don't have money um, and you have money and you lose it, you you want it back and you want more. 
if you have power and you don't have power, you want it or mm-hmm. you, it gets taken away. So when, and same with respect. So I think when we look at this, we need to understand, move beyond just substance use as an addictive place and mm-hmm. focus more on what Gabriel Matei and others are saying is that these behavioral addictions cause just as much impact. And then individuals have to find ways in which to cope with those, those mm-hmm. losses or those ways in which you're doing it. And then that's what leads a lot of times into substance misuse. So um, how do you see our current systems of care, like like health and justice, further propagating these challenges? I think they're two, well, one, uh, it's not think, they're, they're too siloed. So they're, they're not communicating with one another. And when one... Um, when one's trying to do something, it, it becomes criminalized in another area. So even when we look at um, looking at health and well-being and we're looking at safe injection sites, we're looking at all of that, they're still policed in a way where you can look at surveillance and see who's going on there, what's happening. We can start looking at that. And so it becomes, when you do that, you're all, you're all, you're actually pushing people away because if the police aren't working directly with the healthcare and, and supporting it or, or those spaces, mm-hmm. why do I want to trust going in there? So it takes time to build trust. So when we look at this um, with safe injection sites, it takes a long time for people to actually build the trust necessary to go in and, and use those spaces. When it comes to gang members, the fear of the gang member is so ingrained in a lot of these systems mm-hmm. for the individuals who are working in there that when um, people, like in a healthcare system, if people are in, are, are coming into the system who are are vulnerable or are at their worst time, so mm-hmm. they got injured or something like that, it doesn't matter who you are. You become you're if you're bleeding or you're hurt, and you're not getting the service you need, you get upset and you're like, "What is going on here?" Mm-hmm. But if you look or are are seen to be a gang member, that increases the um the fear in that room and it and it shapes the way in which people want to work with you and then security is called in right away Mm -hmm. and so this escalates everything all the way up all the way through right so Mm -hmm. um if i went walking in and i was wearing what people would say oh it's gang attire well i'm a white coated metis Mm-hmm. Would I be treated the same way as um, uh, cousins of mine who are darker and we're wearing and walking in and, and the exact same thing? We'd be treated very differently within the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We'd also be treated very differently within the uh, justice system. Mm-hmm. And that's just, and it's not to call it out. It's to say that we recognize this. How do we make it better? Mm-hmm. How do we improve these services so that everybody feels safe? And again, when you're going into a, like if you're at the, at one of the most traumatic times of your life, how do you go about um, getting the proper care and how do you make sure as, and, and it's, and I'm not saying it's easy for healthcare or police professionals either mm-hmm. in those fields. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying is like the, but we need to be, have a better understanding of what we're actually trying to do. And mm-hmm. then the other problem is, is that when if say it does, an incident does happen mm-hmm. and when, and if one incident does happen, it blankets everybody yeah, because of the one time. Yeah, and so this is, but we see this not even outside the system. We see this everywhere. Mm-hmm. If uh, if working in and again anti-racist, anti-oppressive work, um, if you see somebody who you're fearful, or an indigenous person committing a crime, or an indigenous person does something to you, you're afraid of all indigenous people, no matter how many positives you have going away. But that mm-hmm. one incident will always come back. But if it's a 
a white male that may do this, are you afraid of all white males? Mm. And so this becomes this, these cultures of fear, um, or as, um, uh, others have called it like these cultures of terror that are created through historically through mm-hmm. macro historical macro structural sort of places to say okay who do, who are the bodies that we want to um see as positive and mm-hmm. whose are those that we see as negative and it so it's a continuation of uh colonial fear especially on the indigenous body itself mm-hmm. um this sort of brings to my mind something we spoke about before the show. Uh, I recently saw an article on uh, uh, BC is is pushing to ban drug use in all public spaces. And uh, even with knowing what I know, like I, I, I like to think I'm a little bit privy to what, what's going on in the advocacy world. I, I don't know if I completely disagree with that. You know, if I'm out with my family somewhere and, and there's someone who's who's using substances right now, like is that is that a good is that a good thing? And and like like can you unpack that a bit? Sure. When you're saying substances, what substances are you talking about? Is it uh having an open beer in public? Mm. Is it about um smoking um having your like smoking marijuana in public? Mm. Or are we talking about in like hard injection? Mm-hmm. drugs so this is i think that we need to break that down a little bit because okay. if we're here in the city of uh saskatoon you opened up public spark parks for for alcohol consumption mm-hmm. there was a did they a actually do that now? there was a test it was a test i'm not sure if they did it but yeah. they were talking about doing the test yeah but you you go to um other places and you have open consumption of alcohol everywhere else yeah um and so and and I don't know if I really align with that either. You know, like if I go to a a public sporting event with my family and there's giant inflatable beer cans everywhere promoting this glamorous lifestyle that involves drinking, you know, I I don't know, man. Like I'm So that's that's the thing. So you're so you we promote you go to a Blades game and there's alcohol being sold. You go to a concert, there's alcohol mm-hmm. being sold. This is how you have fun. This is well, this is what this is what it is. So if you want to do this, but we have more incidences. And and watch the police, like watch the violence that happens with a bunch of individuals doing that. And that's in a, in there. So why is it that we want to criminalize primarily poor bodies of color mm-hmm. in, in spaces when they're by themselves for the most part, mm-hmm. right? So why is it that we're willing to do that, but yet we'll go across the road and they may be doing, maybe having a beer in public, but there's a fence. And then on the other side is this everybody else drinking and everybody's it. allowed drinking, but they're yeah. not allowed in because they don't have the finances to get in there. Oh, yes. So, okay. so here we go. So when we start looking at this, um, I think one of the things we have to look at is, okay, are we, are we attacking the addiction and that's what we're afraid of? Or are we more afraid of the poverty that's becoming more apparent in our mm-hmm. eyes? Mm-hmm. And um, we don't want to see that. So people who have uh, economic um, stability, mm-hmm. they can go into their home. Mm-hmm. So they, they don't have to worry about doing something out in the open. And when we're talking about out in the open, are we just saying like public, like in a public space? Mm-hmm. So what if um, you're walking your kids and uh, somebody is um, using in their backyard, but it's, oh, you can actually see them using it. Like, is that, mm-hmm. how, how does that work? Cause yeah, where's the line? Where, where does it, where does it come in? And yeah. so if you are homeless, where are you supposed to go in order to do this? So you're saying that, you know what, people who are living in poverty do not have the right to do this. Only people who have um, economic stability have mm-hmm. the right to do this. And mm-hmm. so I think these are sort of the questions we've got to ask. So if you're, if, you're, if you're looking at it from the point of view of, okay, they're using and it's uh, open needle use mm-hmm. and you're closing down safe injection sites, 
well, if you're closing down safe injection sites, then mm -hmm. where are and then banning and then public use banning public use mm -hmm. we're we're criminalizing yeah. we're criminalizing addiction and okay. what we're doing is we're creating a a larger carceral um approach to mm -hmm. deal with mental health issues and so mm -hmm. this is when we're looking at when the silos don't kind of make sense together mm -hmm. so we know from other countries and other places that when you decriminalize and you legalize substances mm -hmm. and you put your money less into into policing those mm -hmm. substances and more into the healthcare of it and mm -hmm. and looking at that like supervised consumption you see a decrease in the usage of uh these narcotics and you see a decrease in violence and you see and you see everything coming down mm -hmm. it doesn't happen overnight mm -hmm. but it takes time and you begin to see this over a trajectory mm -hmm. which is i think a problem we have Mm -hmm. is that we want this magic quick pill fix. We want it to go away. Go away tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah. how we got here has been a history of how to get here. It, it wasn't, we don't have the, the, the issues that we're talking about today, that our communities are talking about today. These did not pop up overnight. Mm -hmm. This is a long standing thing that slowly began to continue to increase. It's just come to a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And so now how do we start looking at this before it tips too far over? Mm -hmm. And how do we begin to reduce this and, and go backwards and have those conversations mm -hmm. and realize that it took a long time to get here. It's going to take a while to get back, probably mm -hmm. twice as long to get here. Mm -hmm. So talking about criminalizing uh, drug use and, and addiction, um, with with uh, Alberta's uh, move to uh, what they call compassionate intervention, mm -hmm. uh, most would call coercion. Um, now, now these strategies are not new. I mean, people have been coerced into treatment for for years and years in Saskatchewan. Here, coerced, coerced even into attending twelve step programs. Mm -hmm. uh, what what is your opinion on on that strategy? Um, I mean, they're they're even they're going as far as they're, they're setting up uh, special uh, places within their prisons to 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 house these people who they have compassionately intervened with yeah I, I i think this is working with anybody if they're not willing to make it they're just going to go through the system so if you're saying you got to do this to go through the system well i'll play the system and mm -hmm. i'll just keep doing what's necessary but i'm not ready to do that mm -hmm. when we also force people into these spaces especially behind prison walls we're also ignoring the um the factors, the stressors when one is outside. Now, this isn't saying prison is safe and easy and there's no stress in prison. Mm -hmm. But when you're in prison, you have you have meals, you have a you have a you have structure, uh, mm -hmm. you have um, you have a bed you can sleep on. I'm not saying that this there's not hyper violence and all that. I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. But you have your necessities are looked after mm -hmm. when you're outside of the prison space, and now you have nowhere to go. You have no home. Uh, you have to figure out how am I going to eat tomorrow? Like, because those the systems aren't talking to each other and we don't have the proper supports within those systems. Mm -hmm. Then where are you going? Your your stressors and everything else are going to compound and then you're going to fall your, fall back and say, well, I'm failing. What happens when you fail? Well, I need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You don't have proper mental health support. You don't have proper support anywhere else. What do you do? You start using substances. The substances get worse as because now you're you're internalizing it all again. And the next thing you know, we're finding the individual back within the in the system. So are you are you suggesting that perhaps there is a place on our spectrum of care for this compassionate intervention? I think that for some people it may work. Yeah. But I and, and I and I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it's uh it works for all. 
And I, and I don't think we're I don't think we have the d- diversity of of care in place yet. We don't have the we don't have the structure. We're we don't have the structures, and I don't think as a society overall. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're willing to c- help create those structures. Mm. And I think that's what it, because again, going back to everything, we're, it's a capitalist society mm-hmm. and, and I don't want to, and cause I always get into arguments with, uh, with family members and like, well, you're all theory and you don't really, you don't live in the real world. I'm mm. like, no, no, I, I am living in it. I'm just saying like, we need to think outside of what we're struck, like what are our, our limitations so that we can actually think about this and talk about this you need money to do that will our taxpayers who do not understand the issues that we're talking about who are don't want to listen to these issues and are like well listen um i didn't do it why are you doing it or i got out of it why can't you get mm-hmm. out of it and not understanding that there was supports along the way and the and the privilege that they may have had in order mm-hmm. to do this mm-hmm. are they willing to give up x amount of their tax dollars to to do this and to support this mm-hmm. and so how do we how do we work with within this? Mm-hmm. How, how do we educate individuals to say, okay, you want a safer community? Mm-hmm. It's not about adding more police. I'm not saying get rid of police. I'm saying, w- how do we make sure that we have the proper resources in our community mm-hmm. and are that our resources are going in the right way? We're seeing in a lot of communities, cities, larger cities across Canada, l- more and more tent cities beginning to pop up because of homelessness and the increase in rent, the increase mm, in... It's like, crazy, man. It's, so you go to Ottawa, Winnipeg, uh, Toronto, Montreal, yeah. Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, like th- where are people supposed to go? Yeah. What's going to happen? And and again, in in Saskatoon and in Saskatchewan, we see it happening out there and it's like, it's never going to happen here. And then we're starting to see it and it's like overnight people are like, oh my God, like it's, it's here. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the same thing with the, with gangs. Get, when the gang culture began to start in, um, in the late eighties, early nineties, and really began to create a, a stranglehold in, uh, indigenous street gangs in Winnipeg. And, and then it started to branch out into other areas and mm-hmm. gangs were in other cities. Saskatchewan at the time said, we don't have a gang problem. Like people don't want to stay here. They're just coming and going. We're not anything. The problem is is that um, they were here the whole time. We just wanted to turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. And it's like, it's it's only happening on the west side of Saskatoon. Yeah. Just yeah. let it happen there. And then yeah. all of a sudden... And that, and that and that's, exists to this day. 100%. It does. I Like most people, they they, they, they feel as though the east side is, is, is safer. Yeah. You know? And so. that's, and I, and we hear this all the time. And this is still the same thing. Like there's articles and people talking about this all the time mm-hmm. saying, um... Don't go, don't cross Idlewild. Don't go to the west side of Saskatoon. Yeah. Like yeah. you're going to get stabbed. You're going to get hurt. And it's like, well, let's look at. Why? Look, look at, <laughs> look at why. And first of all, who are you afraid of? And then yeah. we're seeing the same things happen in small towns and in, yeah. and that, and they're blaming, yeah. they're blaming a core neighborhood, like that they have this I, infrastructure. And then all of a sudden, when we talk about indigenous street gangs, we're like, oh, they're not organized enough to do this. And it's like, okay, yeah. what is going on here? Yeah. You're, yeah. They're either too good at what they're doing or not good enough. And mm-hmm. so these are some of the problems. Yeah. I, um, I just got a message from, from a friend the other day saying that his, his, he had a family member living in a tent outside of Allen. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is certainly not a, a, an inner city problem. This is propagating throughout our province. Yeah. But I noticed you, uh, a few minutes ago, you touched on, on the importance of, of lived experience in, in policy reform and how, um, and it reminded me of a conversation that I had with our, our friend, uh, Colleen Christofferson Cote, mm-hmm. uh, and, and she, she talked about how, um, people, how policymakers 
who are in that position to make policy are are designing the policy through their own lens of of society like how would they navigate the system if they were in their current position and had a, a substance use problem you mm -hmm. know they're not they're not designing it from a, a standpoint of someone who is more vulnerable or or less privileged yeah. or 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 experiencing an abundance of trauma in their life yeah um what would you have to say to that what i think that's where we need when we're looking at developing policy it shouldn't all just come from individuals who've never had experience within yeah. this and i think that's where we get the best sort of uh, program development is that when we look at people with lived experience within that, then they have to be able to talk about their experience and what, okay, we're going to develop this policy that won't work. Well, why won't it work? Because this, this, and this is, is going to interfere with that. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So maybe we've got to pull this policy back a little bit and focus uh, more upstream than it is downstream mm -hmm. on what we're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. And, but we need to be able to create spaces where these positions aren't tokenized. So the more mm -hmm. I see things now and a lot of these communities and agencies and think tanks that are doing, they bring in people with lived experience on whatever the subject matter is that they're looking at. And it's almost like a, a voyeurism into their life. And then they listen to them and then they leave and then they develop something and they say, here you go. Mm -hmm. And this kind of came to me when I was in, doing some work in Winnipeg. Um, trying to work with uh, a group out there, Ogichawa, Pematawa, and Kenamatawa, and OPK. And the first time I was going out there to meet them, and they're very similar to um, uh, Straight Up mm -hmm. and, and what they're trying to do and, and build relationships, build community, um, strengthen individuals from their, where they're at and working where people are at. Not where we think they should be at, but working where they're at. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this, uh, we had a, a circle and we were just talking and I was just trying to get to know them and talk about what research is and how do we develop research protocols or how, what what is sort of the projects you want to look at and everything else. And one individual stood up and and it, he, it was important what he said. He's like, all your researchers ever do is come in here and look at us. It's a pornification. It's like you all get off on the trauma of our lives. You run back to your offices, you write about us, nothing changes, and we're stuck mm -hmm. in the same space over and over again. So mm -hmm. how are you going to change that? Mm -hmm. So when I think that's a, it's why I'm saying that, it's not just important to researchers to begin to understand like, okay, am I just a, a voyeur in here? Mm -hmm. Am I getting off on people's trauma? Is that what mm -hmm. we're doing For, for self-gain. For, for self-gain to feel like, oh my God. Amongst look how, my colleagues. Look, look how well I am and look yeah. at all of this and I feel so much better look that I didn't end paper. up over here. But I think policy also needs to to do that and to yeah. go in there and say, like, are we um, creating and are, are we actually doing what we're trying to do? Mm -hmm. And when we bring people with lived experience in here, are we just creating a tokenistic space to have them listen? Because this is what we're told we're supposed to do now mm -hmm. and what it is. So how do we make sure that people with lived experience actually have power into into those spaces? But how do we make sure that it's not one person with lived experience that we're looking at? Because as you know, um, your experiences are very different than another person's yeah. experiences. And if we're only using your experience, then how is it, so how, different? Is, how is it going to like, and somebody else is totally different and we create a policy around your experience, mm. but your experience is just actually, you're only like 4% of the population that actually succeeded with that piece. Mm -hmm. Whereas 96%, there's a whole other way in which to look at this. That would be better, but we just saw you, you're, this is what it is. So 
I think this is where research and policy really need to kind of start coming together a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Utilize researchers who have strong community connections, who can bring individuals together from different areas and start looking at this so that we're not just tokenizing one person to speak on behalf of everybody who yeah. has an addiction issue or everybody who's lived in poverty and yeah. all of that, yeah. but rather they can become the advocate for that. So how do we create these sort of boards or these spaces in which people with lived experience can come together, talk mm-hmm. and say, okay, Daniel, you're gonna, you are going to go to the uh, this think tank that they're developing on new drug policy and everything else but these are our issues we need you to go here and talk about those issues so rather mm-hmm. than you talking about from daniel's position you are talking from a group of individuals who've come together to say these are our biggest concerns mm. let's take a quick break here i just want to shout out today's other sponsors if you are struggling with the substance use of a loved one or have tragically lost the lost a loved one to drug-related harms reach out to stronger together canada peer-led support groups by mom stop the harm and or naranon groups of saskatchewan if you are in search of private inpatient addictions treatment check out prairie sky recovery center and located in lipsick saskatchewan to make contact or learn more about today's sponsors check us check check out our new merch or show us some love and buy us a coffee all of those links are in the description below so let's talk a little bit about cultural integration in our systems of care Um, are you seeing any success with that at this point um i'm seeing success for those who are putting it in place but i've not seen it being translated into an improved health of the people in the community mm-hmm. and so um because i don't want people to say oh well he's saying we shouldn't be having this that's not what i'm saying i saying, yeah we need to have um spaces in which people feel safe coming into in which they feel that they are being represented within there that they have options in their security and everything else that's going on but we also have to make sure that it's not to- again going back to this idea of tokenistic or multicultural approach where we're just mm-hmm. going to put in a symbol or we're going to yeah, put up a, a painting, room with a medicine wheel a medicine wheel yeah, in the room and, that's it. and just let it go from there rather yeah. if you want transformational change you got to change the whole system yeah. so from coming in and the life what is the life cycle of somebody coming in to a let's say a hospital or a treatment center and they're coming in from that very first step until they leave what how is the cultural integration that's going on with that all the way through. Mm-hmm. When we get into the idea of cultural integration, we have multiple First Nations cultures across Canada, and they're and they're different. There's mm-hmm. there's similarities that go through. There are um, there and there's certain values that we can see that run through different Indigenous uh, perspectives. But when we start applying this through visual aids we see that we're actually excluding a lot of things or we're saying that you need to do this sort of practice ceremonial thing. Well, again, with Métis, we don't, some smudge, mm-hmm. most don't. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at tobacco offering and everything else for elders, it, that's not something Métis do. Métis give other things within that. But it's, but what I'm saying within that is that it's the, the substance is different or the, the material good is different. But it's the what is it's the gift and what does the essence of the gift mean and what's going on in there? Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at this, what happens is that a lot of um, systems, because they don't want to engage in the plurality of indigeneity across Canada, meaning that the multiple ways in which indigenous life worlds are here, mm-hmm. cultures, languages, ways in which we see the world, 
and it's easier just to create a pan-indigenous approach, which we've been pushing since like the 80s through multiculturalism, mm-hmm. it's easier to do that. When we're looking at urban centers, urban centers are a conglomerate of indigenous mm-hmm. life worlds coming together. Diverse. And, and the diversity yeah. of it. So if I'm coming in there and I'm Dene and uh, I'm going in and it's all Cree and it's like, well, here's your Cree programming that's going to come towards you. What's the impact that that's going to have on me as on my identity as a Dene person. So we really haven't looked at the ways in which cultural uh, integration within systems, mm-hmm. post system, going back into the community and what does that actually feel and how do individuals engage in that? I do know that there are some people that are starting to do some of this work to look at, especially within criminal justice systems yeah. and healing lodges yeah. and having, if a healing lodge is located in a specific place and you only have certain elders there, but if you're from a different community or your cult or your um, First Nations, Métis, Inuit identity does not fit with those elders, mm-hmm. what is the impact that that has? Mm-hmm. And then does culture become just another thing? Well, I just want to make, I just got to get through it for this day because this is what's happening. Yeah. Can individuals challenge elders or knowledge keepers within the systems? Mm. And and I think that's a big question that we need to kind of ask ourselves. Is like, What do you mean we, challenge them? Well, when we look at, when we have elders and knowledge keepers in here, there's a idea that what they say is 100% like law and everything else. Mm, okay. But how I always grew up is that you you have the right to ask those questions Yeah. And, and to do that. And the elders and knowledge keepers that I work with and that I've been around, they enjoy those questions. Yeah. They love those questions like, oh, you know what? I never thought about that. Or the reason why I say it this way is because of this. And they have explanations to do that. Mm-hmm. But I th- hear stories from individuals where they say that they ask the question to an elder or knowledge keeper. And it's like, well, this is the way it's always been done. Don't ask me another question. And it just shuts them off. And it, it creates a thing. So there are these discussions yeah. around who who gets to claim to be an elder knowledge keeper. And if an elder and a knowledge keeper is paid by an institution or a system mm-hmm. um how and but are they actually they're representing this th- that organization are they actually representing their people their culture well not their culture their people okay. and i think there's we got to separate that idea of culture and everything else because of the okay. way it's practiced so you can practice your culture and still be part of a system okay but if that system is oppressive to your people how does that work? Okay. So this is, this becomes like our, and so I've had people come and talk and say that, yeah, sometimes elders and knowledge keepers are weaponized against their own people because the hmm. system needs them. And so here it is. And then all of a sudden it, it's, it becomes a weaponized. And this, this isn't to say, well, we shouldn't have elders and knowledge keepers. No, we, we need them. Yes. We need them in those spaces, but we need to be able to have very critical discussions in an ethical manner to mm-hmm. ask what is happening here. What is going on and mm-hmm. is is this person um, uh, the right person for this? Um, and again, there's also community politics involved in all of this, right? Yeah. So It's very complex. It, it, it's, it is complex. Yeah. And that's why I think we, we need to have more of these discussions and open discussions about all of it. Uh-huh. Um, and to say, like, what, who, if the agency's been working or the system's been working with uh, this elder for over 15 years, and you go in there and it's like, well, have you, have any other elders been involved or knowledge keepers been involved in this? And like, mm-hmm. have you, ha- do you have a, a circle where uh, experiences and knowledges can be brought in that are different or are you yeah. just using one? And it's like, well, we've only had one, this person. And it's like, well, that's not 
really good because you need to be able to get multiple because it's just like for myself i'm i'm a researcher and i keep telling people that if you have don't just listen to me yeah take what i'm saying and find somebody else yeah and and just go through and if they if there's if what they're saying is different than what I'm saying, mm-hmm. ask the question: Why? What's the difference? Why is why is there such a difference? Yeah. And it's that critical thinking that I think we're kind of missing within the systems yeah. that we want. Again, going back, we want that quick fix. Mm-hmm. We want that pill. We want that just that policy to come in and fix everything for us, so we can go on about our lives. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to engage in any of this. Mm-hmm. Whereas these are complex questions mm-hmm. with without a simple answer and. We just need uh, a lot more, it sounds bad, but we need more time and space in order to do this. So, but that's what we need to do. We, yeah. we need, and we need to find how do we, how do we build uh, um, what I call relational, myself and others call relational accountability. How do we, how do we build ethical relationships? Yeah. Um, so we can have hard discussions Yeah. and, and work through that. And I think, and it can't so, just be hang on with, a second here. Yeah. So if you're, if you're say we're talking to service providers right now, say there's yeah. service providers out there listening right now who are wanting to do better in community, who mm-hmm. are wanting to foster more meaningful relationships. Now, everything that you've talked about, what advice would you give or what suggestions could you make to these service providers who wish to improve their relationships and help people who are using substances or who are engaged in, in dangerous behaviors? Well, I think one is you got to, know who you are and and what i mean by that is that um working with grad students who want to work with within urban populations uh who are street involved and everything else mm-hmm. i ask them like where have you come from like how how have you ever done any work have you ever done like what's your family background like mm-hmm. you you have to know yourself <laughs> what qualifies you? what qualifies you to yeah. be able to do that like because if, as soon as you go into these spaces and you're saying i just want to help people mm-hmm I'm 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 here to help because I feel sorry and all that. I, I you should not be going into those communities because you're not ready to because you're doing it as a savior moment rather than trying to understand where people are coming from. Mm. And so there's that piece to it. The biggest thing is getting to know your community. Mm-hmm. Who, you're a service provider. What other like what are you? If you're working for a nonprofit organization, then who? What is the people you're working with? If you're working with a government agency, what are the nonprofits in the community and how are they working with it at a grassroots level? Because they probably have a stronger connection with certain individuals that they're working with. So begin to build those relationships. Realize that it takes time. Mm-hmm. Don't, and you can't do everything. And when people are in, again, when people are in, uh, are in a substance abuse lifestyle, or a street culture lifestyle that's mired in violence and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they're not ready for change. They're not ready to take that step mm-hmm. and to understand, okay, how do we make sure that there's an opening and a safe space that they recognize this, that when they're ready to make a change that I'm here or that the service is here and that they can come in and, and see what's going on mm. and continuously allow for mistakes to happen. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's the biggest thing is to understand that we didn't success is never built off of a hundred percent things getting right all the time. Success yeah. is built off of a, a lot, lot of, of wrong things, a lot of failures, a lot yeah. of failures to understand how do I not do this again? Mm-hmm. So 
and I think we forget about that when we're talking about individuals who are are, are struggling with addictions issues or, or struggling with substance misuse and and living in poverty or are have issues with homelessness and and all these all these things is we we forget that mm. we're here be, because we were able to fail mm-hmm. and then succeed the next day mm-hmm. whereas they were they weren't able to succeed and they were never able to have a support network to help them say, okay, well, you didn't succeed, but that's fine. You're, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get you to the next. And again, what does success look like? Mm-hmm. Like success is different yeah. for everybody. What's the benchmark? What, what is, what are you working with? And yeah. again, is success just living a happy, what you consider a happy lifestyle? Yeah. And to me, success is how do we live together in a way in which we're not utilizing violence onto one another and hurt and killing each other within these spaces. Mm-hmm. So to me, if we focus less on, oh, we need to get drugs off the street and focus more on how do we actually decrease violence within our communities, that changes a lot. That, ch- that changes the way in which we're engaging in this. Mm-hmm. And it changes the way in which we want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, if you're a gang member, I don't, it doesn't bother me if you're a gang member. Like it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. All I care about is you don't engage in violence mm-hmm. because like you go to a local sports team. Like that's what we're talking about when we're looking at all of this. It's like, it's a group of individuals coming together. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, that's what it is. Yeah. And, and again, this gang culture, um, street culture and these, these street uh, substance and addictions issues that we're seeing, they're yeah. never going to go away until we're actually going to start looking at root causes. You think it'll ever go away? I don't think it'll ever go away. It not completely. It, it will never go away until we're willing to take um, drastic measures mm-hmm. to truly understand what is causing this. Mm-hmm. And until we're ready to attack tackle the issues of uh, neoliberal capitalism, um, looking at the ways in which we're incarcerating certain individuals, looking at the way in which racism, sexism, homophobia, and all that are are ingrainedly violent onto individuals simply for being alive, mm-hmm. the, the things aren't going to change. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to change a whole system? Do I do I think we're going to see? A lot step of people say. A lot of people say burn it down and start over. Can't burn it down and start over. No, because we have. If you're going to do that, we have to wipe all of our minds. Yeah. That's, and that's the truth. Like people are like, oh, we got to burn. I'm like, no, because you have a history and knowledge of how something was built and you're going to build it back towards that. So you need to re-educate and find out new ways to come together to think about these issues. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? Until there's a hundred percent healthcare, mental health supports all the way across that, no matter what, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Then, and everybody gets access to it. Mm-hmm you're always going to need those underground economies with substances in order to deal with trauma. Mm. So you're always going to need that. Mm -hmm. So until that happens, there you go. So if you're saying that gangs control everything and they have control the underground economy until you get rid of the underground economy, gangs will always be there. Yeah. But the underground economy will always be there if there's continues to be illegality uh, and things that are seen as illegal going through society. So the near network, Mm -hmm. um, your brainchild, no, no. Uh, this the near network is. Uh, First of all, what does near stand for? The networks environments of indigenous health research. Okay. So, um, and when we look at this, this was uh, in 2019. It was funded. Uh, Dr. Caroline Tate was the nominated PI at this time. I was uh, just coming back from the University of Calgary, mm-hmm. and I was uh, applying for one for the National Coordinating Center, um, which 
uh, we put it together and this is where it came from. And then uh, she's moved to the University of Calgary now. So it's almost like we swap spaces. Mm -hmm. Now I'm here and I'm the PI with it. And what we're doing is we're trying to work with communities, um, Indigenous communities on different research priorities that they see. And so what we do is we provide funding for small projects um, up to $10,000 to either look at what sort of research is going on, mm -hmm. um, but also looking at knowledge translation. So mm. we have, uh, say, a community did some research on substance uh, within their community, but they have no way in which to get it out to the community. That's my jam. Get it out there. That's so my jam. <laughs> we, we provide funds for individuals to be able to get that knowledge translation, knowledge mobilization back out into the community the way mm -hmm. the community wants to see it. So we provide funds like that. Uh, we provide spaces for uh, students to student support uh, for the University of Saskatchewan, uh, University of Regina, and First Nations University, because mm -hmm. we're not just a University of Saskatchewan network. We're a provincial network. Mm -hmm. uh, we're just housed at the University of Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do that. We try and uh, look at supporting uh, Indigenous um, and, and, and slowly supporting a little bit more non-Indigenous graduate students who are looking at working with communities in a good way. Mm. Um, and so it's a conglomerate of researchers and community agencies and community partners who are trying to come together to say, okay, what are the issues that we're seeing? How do we go about doing this? And how do we begin to build more relationships and knowledge for the community going mm -hmm. out there? And so it's a it's thing is a network. It's like, how do we keep building it out more and more and more? Mm -hmm. And uh, last week we had a, um, a research day out at Wanuskewin, and we're going to be holding these every year now where we're going to be bringing back anybody who gets funding from us um, or doing projects. We're going to invite them back with their community partners to relay what they're doing and what they're seeing to other communities and an mm -hmm. open event for people to see, okay, what does research look like? What it, research is more than just surveys and doing a, an interview. So, 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 so um, knowledge transfer and accountability type thing. Yeah. Okay. So we want to make sure that the community is like, this is what we're doing in the communities. Yeah. This is what's happening and trying yeah. to be transparent because, yeah. and we're trying to hold these events so that other communities can see other researchers that are going on that they may not know of and mm -hmm. hear, oh, I can go and talk to this person. Networking. Networking. Beautiful. Well, there, there we go. Community like, building. That's And that's Love the whole it. thing. It's like, how do we go about doing this and how do we make sure um, and, and there's, are there ways to do better? A hundred percent. And that, but we want to continue to grow the network, um, and make it so that it truly becomes a provincial wide network that, mm -hmm. um, is supporting, uh, indigenous health initiatives awesome. across the, across the province. Cool, man. Did we miss anything? I don't think so. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks um, for having me on. Yeah, no problem. If you're getting anything out of what we're doing here, please give that like button at the bottom of the screen a like. If you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe. Hit that notification bell. We go live every Friday morning, every Sunday night, right here on Hard Knock Socks on YouTube. That's it. We'll see you guys Sunday night. Take care. Say, hey, this is Hard Knocks Talks. <laughs>